This is Mission.org. This is IT Visionaries, your number one source for actionable insights and exclusive interviews with CIOs, CTOs, and CISOs, and many more. I'm your host, Albert Chow, a former CIO, former sales VP, and now podcast host. Everything is going to the edge. There's a lot pushing to the edge and that performance and that consumption and that experience has to be very, very crisp. So our core product is tier one internet. But what we've been doing is moving up the stack and building so that we are prepared for edge. So a lot of our emerging innovation is really getting better at the edge. It's also around packet innovation. Like how can you, since you are bound by some of the physical constraints, how do you continue to optimize what we are delivering in our packet quality and throughput and volume, and how do we drive it more to the edge? I'm sure you've already noticed that nearly every experience in the real world now includes some kind of online continuation or supplementation of the same experience. And as that world trends towards increasing the flow of data, companies like Zayo Group are becoming even more in demand. EVP and CIO Gina Ray Haig and her team at Zayo Group are working hard to stay on the edge of innovation to continue supplying a bigger and faster pipeline to support our interconnected world. This episode is a part of our communication and IT series here at IT Visionaries. Check out the other episodes in the series, including last week's episode with Executive Vice President, CTO, and CEO of Comcast, Rick Riaboli. And up next to wrap up the series is Frederick Nielsen of Access Communications, highlighting the security advantages brought about by automation and AI in camera technology. But without further ado, let's meet Gina Rayhag. Gina Rayhag, welcome to the show. Thank you, Albert. Thank you for having me and inviting me to be here with you today. It's great to be here. Listen, we are stoked to have you here. And it's not often we get to have people on the network side because most of the time, everyone talks about cloud, cloud this, cloud that. But we know that most companies actually are not in the cloud. Zayo Group, for the audience that doesn't know what you guys do, tell us what is Zayo Group? What do you guys do? What is your specialty? Absolutely. Zayo Group is a global communications infrastructure platform. So what we do is we provide all that mission critical bandwidth to the world's most impactful companies, fueling all of their innovations that are transforming our society. So we have one of the largest footprints in North America and um, Europe, and it includes metro connectivity. We have thousands of buildings and data centers that we connect, and we also serve all the hyperscalers. So we do know a bit about cloud and connecting them. (laughs) Yeah, I think a lot of people, when they think to themselves, hey, well, I just use the cloud. They don't really think that all the cloud is is obviously someone else's computer and more importantly, someone else's lines. That's how the computers talk to each other. And Zayo Group is doing both. Give us an idea of the innovation that's happening in this space. You know, I'd love to hear a little bit what Zayo Group's up to, what you've been up to personally over the last couple of years in this space, because, you know, I think people that are, most of our audience is software based. Like a lot of people know how to code, they know how to develop software and they know how to use cloud infrastructure tools or, or infrastructure tools to spin up hardware and things like that yeah. and you know, provision services. But they don't really think about what goes into the backbone to make this come true. And that's where you play. Give us an idea of the innovations and things that are happening in this space. 
Yeah, you know, I think um, we obviously have all of the core backbone, which would be our fiber network in the ground, but we're doing some pretty amazing things on the waves and wavelengths. We're doing a lot around um, what we call cloud link, and that is our data center connectivity and, and really creating more of that low latency private connectivity for enterprises to connect to their cloud, their public cloud um, environments and architectures. The other thing that's really cool, we're working on moving up the stack as is, I, I think a few other companies out there into what do we wanna do working with Starlink? How do we actually get to that um, more of the space connectivity and the ground stations and using our waves and our, our towers for connecting a lot of that other low, um, low altitude or I guess low atmosphere um, connectivity that Starlink and SpaceX and everybody's starting to chase now. Yeah, it's it's weird. It's crazy to think about that. Like you just said, low atmosphere, right? Yeah. You know the the innovation that's coming through. You know, obviously for a company like yours, investing in hardware infrastructure is a significant cost. It's much more different than a, a normal software company. What they would do. Give us an idea of like timelines of innovation for you for your team because obviously you have a lot of projects that you're trying to bring to life, uh, but it's there's limitations, right? There's phys actual physical limitations to getting these systems in place to connect to low atmosphere yeah. internet. Give us an idea of what innovation looks like at, at a company like Zeo Group. Yeah, you know, I think um, traditional fiber in the ground is definitely long lead times, right? And yeah. you would know that from your background as well and, and some of the networking. But what we are seeing on our wavelengths is we are actually able to speed that up quite a bit. And uh, the innovation timelines really, uh, we just released one of the first 800G optical wave um, using our partners. So we have a lot of strong partnerships with um, providers like Sienna and Infinera that are helping us with the innovations and helping us increase our, our time to market on those innovations. And I think it's really more around the collaborative design and the collaborative engineering that allows that, where we can give them very fast feedback on what they need to do from their side of the house that we're using in our architectures to deploy these advanced services. So uh, we are seeing some of the way we collaborate and the way that we're doing joint engineering, speeding up those, those time to capabilities. Um, but there is still um, going to be some lead times in there and just getting those cycles because these are emerging technologies as well. Yeah. So yeah. it's not like it's all really well understood. The uh, traditional side of things that we're trying to apply is a lot more, you know, just looking at our our ability and our supply chain. How do we speed things up? How do we plan better so that we are building faster than when the demand is is needed and when that bandwidth is needed or that route's needed? And I think that's there's some innovations that are going on in the construction, the way that we're doing our construction, the way that we're um, maybe securing some of our locations in the um, ILAs and our POPs as well. So we're looking at some new technology for access. So how do we deploy more IoT, RFID, biometrics so that the field teams don't get hung up? Because a lot of times that's where the construction slows down is they just get hung up and they, they end up waiting a lot for access to 
physical access for things. Yeah. Yeah. I can see that. I can yeah. see that being a huge problem. Yeah. Give us an idea of, you know, cause you have a unique seat, which is, so you Zayo group obviously serves many other CIOs and CTOs who are trying to build new cutting edge applications. Mm-hmm. What are you seeing in regards to like market demand? Because like they are all going to be centering on you because, you know, when we're consumers, like on the consumer side, we can kind of get an idea of how much bandwidth and how much speed is needed when we think of things like streaming, when we think of uh, hybrid work, the fact that we're talking tools like this tool we're using today, Riverside is talking back and forth between all these you know, endpoints all the time. Yeah. And I'm imagining there's no CIO that comes out and says, oh yeah, we're good. They all want more speed, more process. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I, you haven't met them yet, but that CIO is like, no, we're good, we're good. Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. Right? Yeah, I was just gonna say, just when you think you're good, COVID hits. <laughs> right. Yeah. 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 And then uh, we're supporting, uh, you know, our own internal network. We're now supporting across all networks. You know, you kind of hinted at it with the fact that infrastructure requires partnerships. Nobody owns end to end infrastructure. Yeah. You know, certainly not across the whole country, right? <laughs> like, it's not possible. Mm-hmm. So you need key partnerships. But give us an idea of what, what are CIOs pu- asking for? What are they pushing for? And what kind of cutting edge innovations are you seeing? Because you're kind of at the center point of, of this. Uh, inter- connectivity is often the center point of like, what is, you guys kind of get it like a preview of what's about to happen. Yeah. And, and maybe, maybe I'll start with, let me start with how we use our own infrastructure and network services and where um, our product roadmaps are really moving up the stack. And um, we are a big consumer. So we have a huge Zao on Zao footprint. A lot of things that we see is focus and requests around security. They want more security embedded really at that network and fiber layer or the wave layer, as opposed to relying on, um, you know, more of the, the traditional bomb structure or what you would put in your data center to manage and, and wrapping security around. They really want to see that embedded. So some of our DDoS services, we use that 100% across our corporate and our product um, network and, and infrastructure as well, and how we run both application enterprise applications to how we're actually making sure our product um, development cycles are also secure. So I do see a lot around security. Uh, there's a lot of demand, like I, I am pushing the product team all the time for SD-WAN and better, more elegant SD-WAN solutions, I think, we have, we run SD-WAN, but you know, it's come a long way and there's there's better ways to do it with the virtualization that's been happening in, in all of our on-prem data centers, as well as what the cloud offers from a virtualization. So that's one. And then um, we're always under cost optimization pressure. So <laughs> how do we actually do and provide more digital services, but at uh, lower and lower costs. So the cost optimization around that data center connectivity, whether you're in an on-prem uh, situation and footprint, or you're in a hybrid, or you're even in a multi-cloud um, architecture. So the architectures are changing pretty rapidly, and there's a lot of pressure. I have the same pressure around cost optimization all the time, right? And we want to save those dollars so that we can continue to drive more innovation and emerging tech into our architectures. So I would say that's what I'm living. And that's also what we hear from our customer base. And then when you think of, so like there was two things that I, th- I heard there that 
software certainly is going to be a big part of, which is the one that, for example, you said security. So you're building, you're probably implementing tons of security measures, you know, to protect, like you said, from DDoS attacks or just data encryption, obfuscation. I don't know. There's probably so many things I can't even think about right now that you guys are trying to invest in. And I was thinking, you know, and then also probably software to find network routing or like network spin-ups to make move traffic faster, cheaper. I mean, how much, I guess, how much less expensive is it going to get in the next five years? Because I know the demand to egress and ingress and send data across the country, that's only going to go up with automation, everything, IOT. You know, we already talk about the, you know, what would it take to stream We've had a couple of um, autonomous vehicle companies on our show before, and they talk about, you know, where is the, who's going to do the computing? It's going to collect the data. It's going to compute at the cloud. It's going to compute at the edge. Is it going to compute in the vehicle? Yeah. Uh, Whatever it is, it's going to be moving tons of data super fast. And it's going to, they're going to say, Zayo, move it faster, cheaper. Yeah, (laughs) exactly. And it's not necessarily just moving the data in a static way. So if you think about what's going on in the world, 5G, there's a, ton more consumption and speed that's coming across that, but we don't have the coverage fully that we need yet, right? Mm -hmm. So there's still, um, the big carriers are still working on their coverage maps and how to get that performance and reliability down. And when you think about autonomous vehicles, I mean, you're driving a car at 80, maybe faster miles an hour, And that is moving from tower to tower to tower. It has to be very, very reliable. It has to be very safe and secure. And I think that's what we see a lot in the security aspect of things, but also that consumption and the performance of that to um, those handoffs have to be seamless. It's not just taking uh, massive amounts of data, ingress, egress, and running them over a fiber line. It really is in the air and and in across those wave networks, or maybe even um, some of those low atmosphere networks, right? And the performance of that has to be stellar, especially in areas that maybe do not have a lot of coverage. That's where the low atmosphere is trying to fill that gap. Yeah, that's what I was going to ask about when you when I heard that is you know. Uh, someone once told me that one of the biggest limitations to having a more robust, better network is actually government permit permitting. Yeah. Like the ability to build a tower, the ability to provision a tower to, or dig a line to connect two endpoints is actually getting quite expensive. Or yeah. let's say the process takes just takes too long. Even if the, it was okay, it does, you can't speed up the process for permitting and stuff. Yeah. So you're talking about low atmosphere. There's obviously, I don't know. I don't think Space Force is regulating it yet, but <laughs> I'm assuming. Yeah, yeah. They might be though, soon. <laughs> <laughs> is that is that something that's on our horizon where it's like, uh, you know, for example, I'm, I'm, you know, there's remote places that are, you know, I'm about to go to, go to Costa Rica, for example. There's plenty of places that are on paved roads. Is, do you see a future where people are just going to be able to move things via satellite into position and just provide internet to entire populations and communities? Yeah, it could be um, it could be that low atmosphere satellite link and mesh network. Um, but I also see and it's interesting you're going to Costa Rica. I, I went to Costa Rica probably 15 years ago and I had the best coverage hiking in the jungle in Costa Rica than I've ever had anywhere else around the world. It was amazing. Now, they are doing that and did that. That was 15 years ago. They had a lot of towers. 
And um, so I think you can get it from towers. And just remember, low atmosphere, you still need to connect and downlink to a ground station somewhere. And that's usually a tower. That's true. That then is is processing and doing those handoffs across the waves. So just because it's up there and, you know, I think Starlink has proven they can get it up there. It is exactly what you just mentioned. It is getting it downlinked into a ground station that then it can traverse across so that that connectivity stays up with it. Um, So the uplink and downlink are really, really important aspects of this architecture and it being able to be really reliable and really resilient. And, And so that you can have more connectivity. You'll have to tell me when you go to Costa Rica, what your experience there is. I was, I was, really impressed with how much connectivity I got and how much coverage they had. And I think back to the government, it is up to the government regulation to decide and make those decisions for their own GDP of what that looks like and how they want to build their own infrastructure out there. Costa Rica had an amazing infrastructure. And I think, you know, the U.S. is is definitely getting there. Europe is, is getting there, but there is a lot of regulatory loopholes. And one of the advantages of looking at that is who already has a solid footprint of that, um, of those ground station or of those real estate rights for those towers is really important. And Zeo, we're, we're lucky, we're fortunate that our founder and the vision was to really build out the footprint and gain all of those rights um, early in the days. Building new towers definitely comes with its own challenges. And like you said, speeding up permitting, hopefully we can digitize more and more of the uh, regulatory side, no matter where we are. Yeah. So we can speed that up. But yeah, it is important what kind of footprint you have. Yeah. The uh, the place I'm going to is a town called Pavones and there's no paved roads in there. So I'm going to fly to a town called Golfito in like a puddle jumper. And then from there... It's bumpy roads all the way in, but they told me there's internet there. So we'll find out. There is. Yeah, <laughs> there is. Well, you, you get back to me on that and let me know, let me know what you, what you find. I, I'd be a good comparison, compare and contrast from then to, to now. Uh, but you're going to have a great time. It's, it's a great place to be in and it's very connected. Yeah. I found that out to your point. I did for those who have not traveled internationally. Um, it's almost as if they're like, they skipped the desktop world they skip desktops yeah. like uh, so many countries like they went straight to mobile phones uh, or like jumped they jumped desktops and went into mobile phones mobile payments it's pretty crazy i remember when there was peer to peer payments here uh in america like but my friend you know i have family in taiwan that's a developed nation but then when i went to like yeah. el salvador or costa rica like they were already doing it and i was like what you know what I mean? Like yeah. I was still yeah. at the stage, like, I don't trust this. I'm not sending the money. <laughs> yeah. Well, I would even say you see a lot of that in the Middle Eastern countries as well. You know, Africa, some of the countries there, they did, they did skip. They didn't need to go through the traditional way of, of getting that connectivity, which is what's driving back to your original question and point. Uh, that's driving a lot more demand, consumption, and expectation of how that performs. So how does that change for you? Because you kind of because consumers obviously change very quickly, right? Consumer appetites and demands, they're always they're always changing super fast. I think we the genie's already out of the bottle, right? It's or the toothpaste is out too, however you want to phrase it. Like no one's going back to less data. That's not happening. Like yeah. people are gonna constantly want high, like high bandwidth applications. It seems to be what we like, right? We like streaming television, we like playing games, multiplayer games where we're all tapping into the same world across the whole world. We're 
watching online concerts streaming from one point to all these other endpoints. So yeah. the genie's the genie's out. It's never coming back. You're always gonna from here. And then and, I, and we had a, a CIO from uh, Fox Sports on talking about how like the cameras now today are projecting images instead of. 4K, it's already gone to like 8K, like and then yeah. 10K, yeah. 20K. Before you know, it's going to be even more intense. Yeah. What does that mean for you guys, though? Because you mentioned like there, you have you have the you have physical constraints, you have partner constraints, you possibly government constraints, but you know consumers obviously don't think like that. They just <laughs> they yeah. don't, they don't they don't they're not concerned about you know they want everything faster, sooner. Yeah. And like you said, faster, cheaper. So like, give us an idea, like the pace of innovation on your team. Is it constantly pushing? Is it like every day you walk in and all your develop- your engineers and developers are like, hey, we got to go faster. It's like they, <laughs> they just did something faster. Like, oh, how do we go faster? Yeah, I, and I think it's uh, taking, so everything is going to the edge, right? And um, there's a lot pushing to the edge and that performance and that consumption and that experience has to be very, very crisp. So when you think about where our products, so our core product is tier one internet, um, direct internet access. But what we've been doing is moving up the stack and, and building so that we are prepared for edge. So a lot of our emerging innovation is really getting better at the edge. Uh, it's also around packet innovation. Like how can you, since you are bound by some of the physical constraints, how do you continue to optimize what we are delivering in our packet um, quality and throughput and volume? And how do we drive it more to the edge? We're thinking about our edge footprint as we're building a mix of assets and pulling into that. The teams right now, they're working on a lot of um, and I'll give you an example. We were helping one of our customers. It's a retail customer. And with COVID, they were doing a lot of curbside um, delivery and everybody kind of changed it. Well, the point of service that they need to check it out and make that have the customer and the, their consumer sign off that they received the, the packet and maybe even doing some satisfaction surveys, they would lose connectivity as soon as they went into the parking lot because their, their mesh mm. Wi-Fi network didn't go into the parking lot for traditional reasons. You didn't want people sitting in the parking lot using your Wi-Fi. And so our teams on the product side, they've really come up with some great um, innovations and POCs on how do we actually use 5G Wi-Fi offload to create a bigger mesh to cover their real estate but also drive more deep security in that. And that way their point of sale or their um, POS systems could work seamlessly both for their internal users, but also for the consumers that they serve. And I think those are some interesting technologies and innovations in what we're doing. And, and our product teams looked at that 5G Wi-Fi offload and they put that solution together pretty quickly. Uh, so it's about using our assets differently, as well as where technology is going to the edge and how we pull those solutions together in bundles that we then can offer a new service or something they may not have even thought about. And, you know, you talk about the EV industry. So there's a lot of EV charging stations going up. We're, we're trying to figure out 
instead of a physical building or coming into a building of a floor of a building, how do we actually connect other physical assets like EV chargers to create mesh networks? And what does that, what will that serve consumer and or enterprise? So we have some enterprise solutions for retail that are pretty compelling right now and what we're doing. And then our 5G Wi-Fi offload, we actually put in our own buildings as well. So I could get rid of the Wi-Fi coverage blips that you have in your normal access points. There's always some wall concrete beam or something that blocks it. The 5G Wi-Fi offload, we have it just in the top of our building and it serves all of our floors. It's pretty amazing. So what they came up with is pretty compelling. Your shopping center retailer example just got me thinking about how there are just certain things we as consumers just take for granted. And I mean, and and I'm sure the business and like a business, like you said, they didn't have the foresight to, you know, prior to, you know, what happened that, you know, 2019, 2020, would anyone think that there'd be more devices idling outside your store than inside your store? Probably not. I don't think anyone thought that that was a reasonable thing, right? And then I'm thinking right now about how, okay, so now that's a truth, right? Then I'm thinking about how we had someone from um, uh, professional sports talk about how expensive it was to network up all the equipment so that everyone at the game could share their experience online. And they told us like the infer- the just the hardware alone to do this was millions of dollars. And I was thinking to myself, like how much, cause like, that's exactly what a business would do. They'd be like, how much money are we losing? Yeah. How much do we stand to make? to drop all this equipment. Cause there's, it's like you said, it can't get there without hard costs and equipment. And it's just one of those things like you, and, and then you do that, right. You multiply that across all your stores. And it's like, this is a serious investment. It just shows how much consumer demand for connectivity really is like, it's going to dictate how the business invests in its CapEx. Yeah. And I think that's where 5g serves a very viable purpose, right? Um, but we do, we're still very early days yeah. in that 5G footprint and um, the use cases are coming up very, very fast and we know what the benefits are going to be. I mean, I I myself am a, a consumer and I have season tickets and when the, we had a new stadium built and when that stadium was built, it was, it took them forever to kind of figure this out. And you think about how much faster to solve the problem and build it out in a cheaper way, a 5G type of footprint or Wi-Fi offload is today than when they built the stadium, probably six years ago, they built this stadium and it was all real big capital expenditure with some OPEX along um, with it. Those those are the things you talked, um, you asked a little bit about the cost optimization and the pressure and the demand, right? And this is where you use 5G technology to do it instead of traditional fiber lines to come in and big data centers in the basement of the stadiums to to serve that up. I also previously worked at a cloud um, provider, one of the hyperscalers, well-known. And when you think about that sports experience and the fan base and the interaction, and they just keep putting more and more really robust real-time analytics on the player. So when the play is made, you can see exactly all their demographics because they're wearing a lot of the the stuff that's feeding up the data. Sensors. Or- the sensors, right? Yeah. yeah. Well, just think about the consumption and the bandwidth and the performance of the bandwidth, whether it's waves or whether it's, you know, something a little higher than waves or in the ground, what you need. And, and that coverage, 
to process that data ingress egress at speeds we've never seen before because it's instantaneous fan experience in the stadium right there that then you get to interact with. Yeah, I you know what it's pretty cool living where I, so I live in Raleigh, North Carolina, which is our local sports team is the Carolina Hurricanes hockey team, which is owned by Tom Dundon, who is one of the lead investors in Top Golf. So he knows a lot about integrated entertainment. Yeah. And so we met with some of the people that are in charge of the um, the fan experience, and they talked about how like the digital experience is like whether you believe in metaverse or whether you believe in physical, physical has now merged. Like there's a part of it that's like somehow merged now. And like most, he was talking about how most young fans will not have fun if there's not a way for them to share it. Yeah. Abroad, like and I was, it was kind of like taking it back, like because you know, if you told me I wasn't allowed to tweet or send a video from a game, I wouldn't care. I'd be like, that's fine. Right. Right. But like these people, like the younger generation is so ingrained, like this is their experience. So like, yeah, they, they would rat, you know, like they're not happy with seeing a goal. They want to see themselves videotaping or streaming the goal to their friends. And that he, cause he talked about why they made the decision to invest in all that hardware to make these experiences come true, which is pretty wild that we've come our demand, like our consumer demand for your services have gotten to that point. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and you just see, you've mentioned metaverse. I mean, this whole augmented virtual reality, it's um, it's accelerating and technology, the hype cycles of technology and how you drive more speed. I came out of the chip industry, so driving more speed in the nano chips and it just got smaller, smaller, faster, faster, yeah. um, more powerful. Right. And it's still going on. That's what we're starting to see. And I think we're now calling it a metaverse, but AR VR was a little misunderstood in the beginning, but that's what it's feeding into. And now we're seeing that hype cycle of that digital twin, the immersive experience. I want to be watching the game and also feel like I'm on the field with them in the team doing the goal, right? I mean, I think this is where this crossover and you said it, it's a collision of physical and, and virtual or digital experiences that are happening. And it is happening in certain verticals much more quickly, like sports, right? Yeah, sports and entertainment for sure. Like, uh, yeah. Like, I, I went to Top Golf's like, top competitor, which is uh, there's another company called Drive Shack. And I, my, my, I'm telling you, you know, my kids had less fun. They legitimately had less fun. Really? Because the screens weren't as accurate. Yeah. Even though shooting golf into these giant holes is the same. Like you would think that's the same. Now that's fun. But what they really enjoyed was instantly looking up, seeing their shot tracked, the data, yeah. how fast, how far they legitimately came back. And like, this is not as fun. I'm like, what do you mean? And it's like, <laughs> like we're, yeah. we're hitting golf balls. <laughs> They're like, no, yeah. it's not as fun. And, it, and their screens were either delayed on a lag or so like that next wave of consumer yeah. they're not there is no difference like that the digital experience will be part of everything yeah there's zero tolerance for the blips that we would um possibly i mean i even find myself like i'll try and go into something uh i maybe google something and if it's not coming up i'm like on to the next thing yeah right and so these new generations of of talent and our kids. I mean, I have a 18 year old son who's graduating high school, but I just look at he's cloud native. He doesn't really understand the old networking infrastructure, on-prem architectures that we have grown up with through our careers and also just 
the clunkiness and the latency that we had to tolerate. It's just zero tolerance for any kind of latency. It's, it's just, that's where it's at right now. Yeah. There's no doubt about it. Yeah. You know, one of the things we also want to share with our listeners is a little bit about yourself. You have, you've had an awesome career, you know, you've done a lot of cool stuff. Uh, if anyone wants to check out Gina's story, she's been CTO, CIO. I mean, she's been working at some killer companies, you know, anyone can check, look that up. And you've also served as a, it looks like an advisor, at least technology advisor board member at Greylock, which is one of the most successful venture firms. Give us an idea. How did you, and I see you were a consultant for PeopleSoft in 97. I myself was a consultant in PeopleSoft. Uh, so I was like, geez, like. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we're dating ourselves now, aren't we? Yeah. How did you get, in, talk about your road to tech. How did you get involved in this space? We said, uh, we also looked you up. We see you went to MIT. So obviously you've been very smart and probably leaning towards STEM from a good majority of your adult life. But how did you first get into technology? Well, it's actually kind of interesting. And I will go back to my childhood. So both my parents were in tech. My dad was a COBOL programmer. My mom was a key punch operator. And um, and she was a tape librarian for the data center mm. of a big mining company, very popular, still around um, today, BHP um, Mining. And it's interesting because you grow up around your parents and, and, you know, independent kids. I was the oldest. I'm going to go out and make my own name. I actually chose not to do tech and, <laughs> um, you know, just little resistance, a, yeah. a little spitfire. I'm like, I'm not going to be my like my parents. But I was around like the first modem. My dad brought home the first modem. My dad actually wrote the program that automated a Caterpillar so they didn't have to send guys into a big caterpillar machine to go into the mines that are pretty dangerous at times. And he automated it and um, said, yeah, we don't need to send any. So that was kind of the first um, trickling of autonomous anything, right? Is trying to write these, these programs in very early days. But I actually went and got a business degree and I started on the business side, but always you have just different aptitudes and that actually served me very well to be on the business side. Then I started, you know, becoming more, I had a technology aptitude and I could translate business requirements into technical requirements really well. So then I actually was shadow IT. So I worked for a lot of um, functions that I was really doing some of that business requirement translation, system integration mapping and data management mapping and stuff like that. So um, I'd say about a third of my career, I started in the business and then I started doing ERP implementations. And that's actually how I came to PeopleSoft is we were doing an implementation. My company merged. I was in shadow IT and they said, you're really good at the at the big application mapping and taking legacy systems and moving them over and actually doing some of the coding and testing and stuff like that. Why don't you come work for us on our professional services and got amazing experience doing that early in my career. I saw a lot of company programs. It was really like going and getting a PhD in business and in technology at the same time doing the professional services route. And then the last two thirds of my career have really been in the tech side. Then I became full-fledged, moved out of the shadow IT into IT, and I've done a ton of things. I've had to stand up. One of the most notable things that a lot of people said I wasn't going to be successful because I didn't come from the infrastructure um, ranks, but I knew how to build really good teams. 
And I knew how to hire really good engineers and just learn as much as I could from them. But when Palm, um, the hand, the one of the first handheld, oh, yeah. and one of the first application stores that uh, was there before Apple had their app store, I was there and the company was splitting because we had very valuable software assets on the application side and the OS side. And Wall Street gave us a lot of pressure around, what are you, a hardware company or a software company? So we ended up, I was part of the carve-out team. We ended up splitting the company and spinning off the software side. I was smart enough back then to go with the software side because we re-IPO'd. And um, just really understanding software is eating the world and looking at it. It was very early in the days. But one of my biggest uh, infrastructure programs there is I had to, I had 12 weeks to build an entire infrastructure to get off of Palm's parent, the hardware company's <laughs> um, very large, costly data center architecture and footprint. And I had to build out architecture for two R&D centers, one in France overseas and one in the U.S. And we did it. And I listened to some really brilliant people. And we, we actually didn't do it over lease lines. We actually stood it up in, in 12 weeks all over VPN. And that and VPN at that time was very early days and maybe not as reliable. So, but it was, it fit my budget. It was low cost. I couldn't afford the lead <laughs> times on lease lines, nor the cost of lease lines. So I'm like, well, I have no choice. I got to take this risk. It was a calculated risk that paid off hugely. And then from there, um, we ended up getting bought and I went into a networking company. So I went to Cisco. Um, so I've had, I've had a great experience. Yeah. When I hear your story, I just think to myself, your 12 weeks is actually shorter than that. Cause if you're running everything over VPN, that's like carving out at least probably, I don't know, like a week and a half right there. Right. <laughs> like yeah. you, you have to, you have to have everything crossed and ready to go probably. And you know, like yeah. I said, less than 11 weeks, because yeah, if you say you transferred it all in one shot, like, that would have taken some time. I was yeah. certainly, that was not going to be a fast upload down, you know, <laughs> rebuild in any way whatsoever. No, it wasn't. It was not at all. But, you know, so you start to see how technology at the edge was there even back then, right? In the late 90s and whatnot. But it's it's kind of funny. I've come full circle. I've seen a lot of things. And um, I've been, I was very fortunate that my parents exposed me to a lot of things. They took me into work on the weekends all the time because they always had weekend work. Um, so I remember playing on the key punch machines. So I've seen tech and tech cycles. Not that I've uh, always chose tech, but um, definitely have a tech mind and it chose me and I it's I haven't looked back the other two thirds of my career. It's been great. And learning being at a cloud provider and learning yeah. um, really being a solution architecture leader and having to build those solutions and running those engineering teams, just tremendous amount of learning. And I'm very grateful for those experiences. Yeah, the uh, when you were talking about following your mom to, in the the tape records, yeah. my, my mom did the same thing. I actually, one of my earliest memories is I reached up one of the keys and I turned something off and it like lost all oh. its recording. <laughs> and my mom, I remember it, like it was a it was a really it was a terrible day for her. But like you know, I'm a little kid. Like you show a little kid a key, like he's going to turn it. Like that's that's a fact. <laughs> that is a fact. Exactly. And that's why we lock data centers down <laughs> and have more and more cameras. Because adults are the same. <laughs> yeah. I think that's where 
<laughs> that must be where the phrase data centers should be dark came from. <laughs> Not dark because they've been turned off by a little kid, but dark because nobody should be in there. Right? <laughs> no doubt about it. Well, Gina, it was awesome having you on our show. And thanks for sharing so much about what you're up to at Zayo, what you see for the future, and also a little bit about yourself, how you got into tech. But before you go, it is time for the lightning round. The lightning round is brought to us by Salesforce platform, the number one cloud platform for digital transformation of every experience. Gina, this is where we ask you questions outside of the world of work so our audience can get to know you a little better. You ready? I am ready. I love lightning round. All right. You mentioned you have a son that is about 18 years old. Does he know or think you're a big deal? (laughs) (laughs) That is a question I'm going to ask him at dinner tonight. (laughs) It's funny. He he should because during COVID, he's been in the house with me when he was on online. And he uh, does now. I would say earlier days, he probably didn't quite understand, but listening to all of my calls back to back to back and my Zooms, he'll he'll actually sit on my couch in my office and listen. And he's like, are you still on a call? Are you still on camera? And, you know, what's going on? So I think he does now and he appreciates it now. Um, but that is a great question. I'll confirm that tonight. <laughs> Sounds good. What do you like doing outside of work? Oh, I love just being with my family, uh, being in Colorado. So I'm based in Colorado now, been here six years. We love going for hikes. We're really big snowboarders and we've always been wakeboarders. So I've had a boat and wakeboarded for many, many years. I have one of the very first wakeboards that was ever built. Can you do any tricks? I can do some tricks, but I'm not a pro. I'm too old for for that. I've taken quite a few hard falls. So (laughs) I kind of am a little more low key wakeboarder now. If someone wants to get into wakeboarding, what's something you'd recommend they do? Well, snowboarding helps. Uh, It's just you got it. Snowboarding, you lean more forward. Wakeboarding, you lean back. But the fundamentals are the same on the board and the posture and the way that you want to use your hips um, to make the turns and do the tricks and the flips and whatnot. So um, that's always good. And uh, make sure you know how to swim and you're not afraid of water. (laughs) (laughs) Gina, I can say without a doubt, you are the first female CIO, snowboarder and wakeboarder we have ever had on IT Visionaries. It was awesome having you on the show. Tell your son, I am a big deal and I'm cool. Okay. I will. And I'll tell him, Albert said. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Listen, it's always fun in, in you. The story repeats itself. A lot of the great CIOs that we've had on the show, they always have outdoor activities. Like it's like they don't, people always think, oh, that stereotype has to be broken by now. If you listen to the show, there is no way the, the, the top leaders in tech are not, that's not all they do. That's for sure. Nope. <laughs> that's not all we do. Not all we do at all. And we're always looking for some place that is not connected. That's the other thing. <laughs> there you go. Gina, it was awesome. Again, having you on IT Visionaries. You were a great interview. Your story is awesome. I love what your, you know, your perspective on what's happening in the world and the needs for connectivity. And thanks for sharing so much about yourself. Yeah, thank you. And thank you for your interest in Zayo. I appreciate it. Mm-hmm.